We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. Uh, This whole summer, we've been ordering our lives around the idea of mission, so it's kind of appropriate we talked about a mission trip earlier, a summer mission trip, because we're on a kind of a summer mission trip. We're on a, through the summer, going on a trip through the Bible to look at mission. we're going to look, we've been looking at, at the scriptures to see what God is up to in the world and what we as his people are to be up to as well. And this is important because I think, I think all of you could probably relate to this to some degree, we become oftentimes convinced that what God is all about uh, is about getting good people. All right? That God wants good people. Uh, that that God you know tells us how to be good people. That God is all about good people. But is that true? See, mission is all fine and good, and we can talk about it till we're blue in the face. But if we don't understand who that's towards, what the target is, we're just going to miss. Right? We're going to miss every time. And so that's what we're doing this summer, and that's what we're doing this morning as we look at the target of mission. So if you have your place in Mark, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's word as we preach. So if you wouldn't mind standing. We're in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is God's word, friends. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And so gathered here in this place are sinners. Some of us are deeply aware of that. Others of us are not yet so deeply aware of that. But we ask for your grace to reveal that truth to us. We cannot hear you on our own, Lord. Your voice calls through the world, but... By our natures, we continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we need your Spirit to come and to enliven our hearts, to awaken our minds, to open our ears, and to open our eyes so that we might see you, hear hear you, understand you, and receive you. And so we ask that you would do that now. Meet us exactly where we're at, because that is what you do. As you walk along, you call us. So we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, for those of you that don't know me, and not everyone in this room does, um, I'm a strategy guy. What I mean by that is I like, I like goals. Goals are they're like a warm blanket for me because you know what you're getting. Long-term goals, short-term goals. As long as there are goals present, I'm generally a happy 
person. Um, and if they aren't present, I like to set them. And, and from where I sit, that, that's because it's really hard to know whether you're accomplishing anything if you don't know what your target is. Right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. I know some of us are like, yeah, I just kind of like to be a little more free range with stuff. That's great. God loves you too. Uh, but, but that's not me. Okay? So, um, you know, to use an example, scoring 102 points is great if you're playing basketball. If you're playing golf, that's awful, right? And the reason is because 102 points in basketball is the goal, to score a lot of points and preferably more than your opponent. To score more points than your opponent in golf is not not good. That's not good, right? You want the the lesser score. And so saying that uh, God is on mission is one thing, but what's the target? I think a lot of us are mixed up on this. So this week we look to Mark 2 and especially to Jesus' mission to see what exactly this is. And so we're going to look at this in in a couple ways, just two, and there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. Okay, we're going to look at at questionable company, and then we're going to look at questioning our categories. Okay, questionable company and questioning our categories. And what we're going to see is this, that in reality there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who need Jesus, and there are those who don't realize it yet. There are those who need Jesus, and there are those that don't realize that they do. So, as we get to questionable company, let me set the stage for you really quick. Quick. If you were here last week, you remember that last week we were in Matthew's Gospel? Now we're in Mark's Gospel. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. They are um, kind of... They are, they are uh, stories about Jesus' life. Um, eyewitness accounts of his life. Now, they're not disinterested history. I don't know, even know if that's an actual possibility. But they're not like someone just recording a set of facts. They are written so that you and I would actually come to believe on Jesus, to trust in him. That's what they are there for. Okay? And so Mark, the guy who wrote this one, is an early follower of Jesus. His claim to fame, he has two claims to fame. The first is that he was present when Jesus was arrested. He was, a, he was a boy at the time. And he was present when Jesus was arrested. And he was so afraid of getting locked up with Jesus that he ran away. And as he was running away, someone grabbed his pajamas and he just kept running without them. So he's naked, running away. And he actually put that in his gospel. Like, who puts that in his gospel? The other thing he's famous for is um, he broke up the world's first missionary band. Um, Paul and Barnabas, he was uh, kind of a thing. Paul and Barnabas were the first missionary band that kind of went and planted churches throughout um, the Mediterranean world. Mark uh, broke them up. So he's kind of like the first century version of Yoko Ono, but without the bad singing. So um, really don't like Yoko Ono's singing. Anyway, uh, so that, that's, that's Mark. So let's pick this up in verses 13 to 14. Jesus, it says, is going out by the sea. But when they say the sea, they mean the Sea of Galilee. So he's in a northern region of Israel. And he's teaching crowds. And verse 14 says this. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, if you were here again, if you were here last week, this probably sounds familiar because we, when we talked about Matthew, we talked about a story just like this one where Matthew was a tax collector and Jesus passed by him, and he said, come follow me, and then he did. And you're like, this sounds exactly the same. It is exactly the same. In the, in the, in the ancient Near East, especially in the first century, in, in this area, because Rome ruled all things, you often had people who had Semitic names and Greek or Roman names. Okay, Levi would be the dude's Semitic name, more uh, Hebraic, and then uh, Matthew would be his Greek or Roman name. He's a tax collector. He's sitting at a tax booth. 
And if you're a first century person listening to this, you would be uh, outraged that we're even talking about this guy. No one likes tax collectors. And I don't mean like IRS agents. Like that's, they are what they are. But that's not, that's not a tax collector in the first century. Okay? The Roman Empire collected taxes over all of its provinces, all the places in which it controlled. And the way it did that is that it did it via the free market. Like, ooh, that sounds great. Except this. What they would do is they would contract out. They needed a certain amount of money from this region. And a tax collector would come to them and say, I think I can actually get you a little bit more than that. Be like, great. He wins the bid. But he also pads in and says, but I'm also going to collect this much more. So he's actually lowballing to the Romans what he thinks he can get because he thinks he can get more than that. And whatever he gets more than what the Romans agreed to, he gets to keep. And oh, by the way, he's doing this with large men in, in armor and plumed hats sitting next to them. He has the full might of the Roman military uh, kind of getting these taxes. So here's Levi, a Jew, getting rich by extorting his fellow countrymen with the backing of the imperial military that's, that's oppressing them. That's probably not a dude you'd invite to your parties, right? Most people probably wouldn't even bother to spit upon him. He's a traitor. He's a traitor both nationally and spiritually. But let's keep going. Jesus said to him, as he's passing by, he's just walking by, says to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, again, something crazy just happened, but, but we are so deadened to this idea that we probably missed it. Okay? Because as much as I can try and explain to you, tax collector, it just doesn't quite get it. Right? Here's a rabbi, a well-respected rabbi, walking past someone that we would probably think better, but it might be easier if we thought of them as like an ISIS sleeper cell agent. Known. Maybe that's not a sleeper cell if they're known, but an ISIS agent or, or a, a made man in the mob. Well-known, violent, and, and someone getting rich on the backs of others. And Jesus walks by him and he says, follow me. That's it. Just follow me. Now, that's crazy enough. Why would he go by this guy and say, follow him? But even crazier is that Levi, Matthew, just does it. He just gets up. He's at his tax booth. He's collecting money. There's money there. Jesus is like, come follow me. He's like, yeah, okay. And he just gets up and he keeps walking after him. Now, for a rabbi, uh, let me, let me get, to you, uh, get a little bit about that word follow. For a rabbi to say, come along and follow, is not like someone following you on Twitter. Okay, This is not Twitter followers. This is not someone podcasting you. When a rabbi come, came and said, follow me, what he meant was, come and be discipled by me, which is a churchy word. Uh, disciple really means... Um, what a disciple is, is, is a leader, some more mature person would take someone and try and multiply themselves in and through that person. You're going to spend significant time with them to multiply himself. So here is a well-respected Jewish rabbi. Some consider him a prophet because um, he's doing crazy things in and around the, the Mediterranean world now. And, and he comes along this criminal a government-sponsored criminal. And he says, I want to spend time with you. And he gets up and he follows him. Levi, the traitor, the thug, the greedy one percenter. Jesus says, I want to pour significant time into you. 
It doesn't end there, though. Look at verse 15 as we look at questionable partiers. Apparently, Levi was so happy about this call from Jesus that he throws a party at his house. He throws a party at his house, invites all of his friends. It says this, uh, And as he reclined, that would be Jesus, as Jesus reclined in his house, that would be Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I know that's a little ambiguous. Most scholars are going to tell you that this party is taking place not in Jesus' house, but in Levi's house. Okay? Levi throws a party. Um, so at this party, you have tax collectors, more tax collectors than just Levi, a whole group of them, and some group designated as sinners. Now, for some of us, that, makes, that, that, that term makes us really uncomfortable, and honestly... In this context, it probably should. Normally, what I would say, and if you've been at Holy Cross a while, what you'd hear me say is that I would stand up here and I'd say that this word sin doesn't mean what you think it means. We hear sinner and we think someone who's flagrantly immoral. The only problem is that in this context, that is exactly what it means. Here's what I mean. If you were Jewish in the first century, uh, you knew that you sinned. You knew that. You knew that you sinned. You knew that everyone sinned because you knew the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is that uh, God created the world good, but we turned away from him. Humanity turned away from him, and we broke it, and we broke ourselves. That we are now sinful by nature because sin is independence from God. Believing that we both can be independent and should be independent. Believing the lie that God doesn't love us, isn't out for our good, can't be trusted. And then living out of that presupposition. You would know all that, but you would also know... There's sin, and then there's sin, right? I mean, there's sinners, and then there's sinners, right? To be lumped into this category of sinner in the first century meant that you were flagrantly immoral. It was like the opposite of respectable people. So in this party... In this party, you have this group of people called tax collectors who are at the very least disrespected. We'll call them disrespected to be kind. And then you have the disreputable. Now that was probably a blast. That is a party, right? This house filled with the disreputable and the disrespected. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. So, Jesus first calls a tax collector... He's a notorious person in that community to be his follower. Then he becomes the guest of honor at a party with other notorious people in the flagrantly immoral in that same dude's house. And we're told that they are there, that all of those tax collectors and sinners are there because many were following him. In other words, they're not new to the party. They've been, they've been tagging along for a while. Now listen, we're in the valley, and I don't care if we want to believe that Stanton is more progressive or whatnot. I bet if we saw that happening, Jesus, the Jesus that we worship, hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people, we would have the same questions that we're about to hear from other people. We'd like to think we wouldn't, but my guess is we would. Look down at verses 16 and 17. It says, the scribes of the Pharisees come up to his disciples. Now, a couple of things before we get to what they say. First, Pharisees. That's a big loaded word and fairly churchy. So Pharisees were about as close. It's a group of Jews, a, a party we'll call them, uh, maybe a theologically distinctive party of Jews within the first century. Um, and, and they were about as close as you could get to a religious authority in the area of Galilee. Technically, 
In Judaism, the religious authorities are the priests. But you don't need priests where there's no temple. There's no temple in Galilee, so there's no priests. Okay? You have, you have um, Pharisees. They are very particular about God's law. And saw any Jew who wasn't keeping God's law as basically delaying God's return to make all things right. Because, you, of course, to get God to do things, you have to obey Him, right? That was the presupposition. Many of us share that, by the way. And so, these were like the really religious guys. That's Pharisees. Now, a scribe. A scribe is like a Bible scholar. Not everyone in the first century was a writer, but even if they were, a scribe is a particular kind of person. It is someone who is an expert in the Bible, an expert in the law. And so these guys who are asking these questions, they're not just Pharisees, and they're not just scribes. They're the scribes of the Pharisees. So you have this group of people who are really particular about God's law. In fact, they made up rules to keep you from getting to God's law, so you didn't even come close to disobeying. It's like... It's like they would see that maybe like drunkenness is a sin. So what we're going to do is we will make it a law that you never even get near wine. Because that way there's no chance you'll ever be drunk. Right? Which sounds really, okay. I mean, all right. So these are the, not just the Pharisees who would do things like that, but the scribes, the super conservative within the Pharisees. They knew what behaviors were sinful and what wasn't. Okay, So these, they, they know of what they speak. Now the second thing, though, is that they don't ask the question to Jesus. Jesus ends up answering them. They ask the question to Jesus' disciples, which is very poignant for us because the disciples are in the party. And if they're in the party, which we'll come back to, that also means that these scribes of the Pharisees made their way into the party. They were trying to tag along with Jesus as well. They're trying to get close to Jesus, probably following him around too. And so they ask the disciples, why does he, that's Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, That's an honest question, so don't disregard it. See, they're the religious people. They're the respectable people. They're the churchgoers. They're the folks that you would expect. If, if God's prophet, which is how most people viewed him at the time, if God's prophet, if potentially this dude's Messiah, if that guy's going to show up and hang out with people, of course he's going to come hang out with me, right? Because I'm the religious guy. I'm the guy who's looking for him. Not these people. We're the ones who are doing things that's going to make God like us. So why does this teacher, this prophet, hang out with these disreputable people, these sinners? Now, let me make clear what this question is presupposing. Like I said before, this question presupposes that there are sinners and then there are sinners, right? That there's grades of this. We already talked about it, but, but Jesus, Jesus' answer needs to be heard from this because we all, I, I guarantee you, and you can argue with me, do it in your heads, try not to do it out loud, but you, you can, we all believe the same thing. You're like, no, I don't, Rick. I believe that all sin is equal before the eyes of God. Really? For some of us in this room, sexual immorality is a huge deal. But we could give two shakes about whether someone completely destroys another person with their tongue. For others of us, we don't really care what someone does in their bedroom so long as they don't conduct hate speech. There's sin, and then there's sin. Right? We all think it. We all think it. 
We have people that we think Jesus is likely to hang out with and others to whom he would just bring the heat. Now look at what Jesus says. Because Jesus overhears them asking this question. So apparently they're close enough that when he asks the disciples, Jesus hears them. Um, and I know some of us think that he was probably using his Superman superhearing, but Jesus wasn't Superman. Okay, so um, he's God in the flesh, but that doesn't mean he's Superman. But he, he's close enough that, they, that he overhears them and he says to them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Now, this is awesome because Jesus uses this health metaphor. We have a lot of healthcare workers here in our church, so you can get this. Because he basically draws together physical brokenness with spiritual brokenness. Not equating them. He's using them as illustrative principle. He's like, look, it's sick people that need a doctor. Do you see what he's doing? They're operating under the premise that there are levels of sin. He's going, no, no, there's sick and there's not sick. There's sin, and then there's not sin. There's need, and then there's abundance. There's not grades in the middle. They're assuming that God's Messiah would come for those who have been doing the right things. I mean, they're not perfect, right? But they're trying. Unlike those people over there who aren't even trying. And he totally disrupts that premise. More than disrupts it. He he just smacks it down. This is important, so listen close. The Bible is clear, friends, that we are all independent of God. All of us. These folks that Jesus is hanging with at this party took their independence on the immoral side. Right? But these scribes, even the question they ask shows that their independence went the other way. Why is, why is the Messiah hanging out with those dudes? He should be coming hanging out with me. Because look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. They went moral with their independence. Dare I say like many of us have. Let me be clear. If you believe that God should treat you differently based on Uh, your charity or your politics or your responsible success or your tolerance or even your church attendance, you're in the same camp that the scribes of the Pharisees are. God should treat me differently than those people because look how great I am. Look at what... Now, I'm not perfect. No one would say that. But I do all right. Better than him. Right? If you even begin to lean that way, welcome to the club. We're all scribes of the Pharisees. And Jesus is like, look guys, I came for sinners. I came for people who get that they need a savior. I came to heal the sick. God knows that we are jacked up. He gets that. God knows that we need saving, not assistance. We can't live dependently on God, so God came in Jesus to live that life for us. He didn't give us the rules to follow to make it look like we're dependent. You can't be dependent independently. He came to do that for us, and then He died to bear our guilt because you and I can't make it up to God. You don't make up betrayals. 
So these guys are like, why are you with those kind of people? And Jesus is saying, I came for these kind of people. And if you don't get that you're one of them, I didn't come for you. Mm. You see that? There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's those that need Jesus and those who don't realize it. Those who need Jesus and those who don't realize they do. Unfortunately, like what we see in this story, that latter category, those that don't realize they do, are more likely to be moral, respectable, upstanding church folk. Like us. So let's question some categories, shall we? Because I think this passage makes us do that. The first is the category of sinner. This story is clear. And look, it shouldn't matter to us. It shouldn't lend more credence to it. But the fact that it comes from Jesus' own mouth probably does. There is one category of sinner. Remember what I said. The Pharisees knew they were sinners. Please do not get confused on that. No one in the first century who was a Jew thought that they were perfect or working towards it. They got that they sinned. They had this thing called sacrifice. They had to do it. They get it. But they weren't like those people. You with me on that? Jesus says to them, you're all in the same boat. Broken is broken. Sin is sin. All of it separates you from God. All of it makes you need rescuing. I know that even in saying that, most of us probably don't really believe that. And this is why most of us struggle thinking very highly of Jesus. If you're a little sinner, if you're just a little sinner, then you only need a little grace from a little Savior to heal your little problem of a little bit of broken relationship with a very little God. But if you're a really big sinner, then you need mountains of grace, rivers of it, from a huge Savior to heal the vast chasm of broken relationship between you and a holy, holy, holy God. And so if you see yourself in that way, you can look with compassion on those who struggle, even if it's not with the way that you do. Because you know that there is nothing wrong with you that isn't wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with them that's not wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Jesus is telling us here that all of us need grace. All of us need his unmerited favor. And none of us need it more than anyone else. And I know that in this room we have certain sins that we think are acceptable. Like, look, just look around. We think greed is okay. We think uh, gossip is probably okay. It's not great. No one wants to be known as the church gossip. But we're okay with it. But other things... Things that we struggle with but we don't tell anybody because we're terrified of what they'd think of us. Like the thought life that we have when we walk into a crowded room and we see people who are attractive. Like the, compu- like the websites that we look at at night when everyone else is asleep. Like the attraction we have to all the wrong kinds of people. 
Maybe the alcohol we drink too much of when everyone's gone. Maybe the pills that we pop that nobody knows that we do. You name it. We believe there's sin and then there's sin. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We all need grace and none of us more than anyone else. If you, aren't, if you don't buy this, can I tell you something? I love you. But if you don't buy this, Jesus is not saying you don't need him. He's just saying there's no other way to have him. He's not saying you don't need him. It's not like, well, I came for sinners, but these righteous people over. No, no, no. The only way to have him is by seeing yourself as the same. So let me ask you a question. Who do you think Jesus shouldn't be meeting with? Who do you think to yourself, Jesus is okay meeting with these people, but not these people? Who do you find yourself thinking, before this person can encounter Jesus, they need to clean up this? How much do you think you should clean yourself up before the Savior will give you his time? Listen to me. You can't. And he's not asking you to. If you were here this morning and you think Jesus can't possibly forgive you, that his work isn't enough, he is telling you right now that it is you that he came for. Because you get it. He's bigger than your sin. You get how much you need him. So stop thinking that you know better than he does. You get it. Just come to him. And if you're here this morning and you think Jesus can't possibly forgive those kind of people until they change, their, they change whatever behaviors, repent. There's one category, sinner. And if you don't think you're part of that category, it came out of Jesus' lips. He didn't come to call you. You're kind of wasting your time in here. So that's the category of sinner. The second category is that of church. <laughs> Did you notice that it wasn't just Jesus at this party? I said I'd talk about this again. Jesus' disciples were at the party too. They were there. They were hanging out with all the disreputable people as well. They're hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. They're followers of the great rabbi, followers of the great prophet, followers of God in the flesh, and they're sitting at a party with a bunch of people that you shouldn't be sitting in parties with. And I love that he uses this health metaphor because it helps us see that the church of Jesus Christ is not meant to be a fortress of saints. It's meant to be a hospital for sinners. Do you know what's true of everyone in a hospital? They wear a gown. Do you know what's true of all of those gowns? They open in the back. Here's what I mean. There's no pretense if you're in a hospital, is there? You're not thinking like, man, if I, I need to get the, the really trendy gown, right? I need to make sure my gown looks really good. I mean, you're going to try and tie it, but let's be honest. It just ain't working. You know what I mean? You wear the gown because you're sick. You're in the hospital because you're sick. And nobody's there going, yeah, I'm not really that bad. No one wants to be there, right? No one wants to be there. They're there because they have to be. Friends, the church should be the only place in the world where you don't have to pretend that you are not jacked up. If you were not jacked up, you would not be in this room. If I weren't jacked up, I wouldn't be here. We, we just wouldn't be here. Some of us are here and we need to drop the pretense 
Because some of us in this room talk about sin as if it's something we did in the past. Back when, right? Way back when. I know that's a lie and so do you. If you could make it better, friends, you wouldn't be here because you wouldn't need Jesus. But that brings up another question, right? What level of brokenness are you okay with? I don't mean like in the church. What level of brokenness are you okay with in the church? Do you really believe what I just said? Because you see, the scribes were fine with their level of brokenness, just not the tax collectors, not the sinners. They understand they were were broken. Like I said, they knew they were sinners, and they were comfortable with their level of sin. But but those guys over there, should you really be with them? Should we be with them? So what are you comfortable with? Because hear me, if you start throwing a party like Levi did, if you start declaring the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, people will come. They will come. I heard it said recently uh, by someone way more articulate than me that the church needs to be a hospitable hospital. And that is so true. We welcome the broken because we ourselves are broken and we apply the gospel. So we've questioned the category of sinner. We've questioned the category of, God, uh, of, of church. Now let's question the category of God. Again, I need to stress this. The Pharisees were not opposed to people repenting. If you've read the Old Testament, there, are, there is a lot about repentance. And the Pharisees added on to it. So there was, they were fine with repentance. They wanted to see sinners repent. But you see, to repent, there's this long process. There's all this religious ritual you've got to do. There's restitution you've got to make. There's all of this stuff. They love that. Because repentance had become a way to make up for your wrongs. Their problem is not that sinners are repenting. Their problem was that Jesus offered that forgiveness freely. Freely. You see, we think that God has standards. And He does. And we think that we have not met those standards. And we haven't. But then we think that for God to be okay with me, I have to show Him how good I can be. Jesus walks by Levi, and he says, come follow me. And he said, okay. And he got up and followed him. And then he went and threw a party. Do you think he changed overnight? Do you think that God was somehow like, okay, you're in. Now, here's all the things you need to do, because I'm not okay with people who aren't okay. You need to get your stuff together. No. That does not happen like that. Look, I know, I know that there are stories, and everyone's heard them. If you've been in the church a while, you've heard the stories, right? The person who walks the aisle, and, the, and they, their life was a train wreck, and the next day everything's roses, and they never have another issue with addiction or with any of that stuff. That happens. I've been doing this for about ten years. Some of y'all have been in ministry longer than I have, and you know that that is not by any stretch the norm. So let me ask you a question. What, what is more of a miracle? That or when someone who gets up every day and says, I want to run back to my addiction, but says, but Jesus is enough, so I'm going to follow Jesus today instead. What's the bigger miracle? I don't think it's the dude who threw away a pack of cigarettes and never touched another one. 
Just saying. God knows what he bought. And he doesn't have buyer's remorse. Levi did not become a changed person overnight. And Jesus wasn't like, look, can you, can you become more like those scribes over there? Like God knows that you're broken. God knows that I am broken. Okay? That is why Jesus came. And he also knows that change doesn't happen overnight. So some of you right now are thinking, but Jesus doesn't know exactly what I did. Now, I'm going to put aside the whole thing about Jesus' omniscience for a second. And just, and just kind of hit things a little closer. You really think your sin is really huge? Let me list some of Jesus' followers for you. Paul, murderer. There was a dude in Jesus' apostles named Simon the Zealot. We don't use that term zealot very much, so let me put it in a term that we do use. He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. Okay? Matthew, Levi, tax collector. We've already talked about him. There was a woman named Mary who followed Jesus, and they call her a sinner which means she was notorious. She was a woman. There are only certain ways that you could be a notorious woman in the first century. Okay? Jesus was enough for all of them. You're like, yeah, I know, but what about... (laughs) Well, then there's Rick. Who was arrogant, self-serving, used people, was addicted to pornography, who stole, who lied, you name it. If you're wondering, that's my name? Jesus is enough. God wants to be reconciled with us. And he does that through his own grace in Jesus. Are you seeing your need this morning? If you're here and you're seeing your need, I don't care whether you've been walking with Jesus for a million years or you just walked into this room and you really couldn't point Jesus out in a lineup. None of us could, by the way. That was metaphorical. But the point is, you don't know who Jesus is. Do you see your need? Then come to Jesus. Because there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who need Jesus. And those who don't realize it yet. Would you pray with me? Grace. God's grace. Grace that covers all of our sin. Lord, you know that we struggle to receive it. You know that we tend to struggle to give it because we haven't received it well. But you also know, Lord, that as the hymn writer said, that if we tarry, if we wait until we're better, we'll never come at all. So, Lord, for my friends here in this room who haven't yet come to Jesus because they're holding so tightly to their morality, they're holding so tightly to those things, or maybe they're just holding tightly to their own pride that they should have been better, I pray that you would break that down. You would let them, even today, run to the throne of grace and claim Christ and in Him alone. For others of us, Lord, who have, but we continually struggle to lean not on you, but on us, I pray that you would help us see that we are not little sinners in need of a little Savior, that we are vast sinners in need of grace that is immeasurable. And that out of that, you would build in us a compassion for all who struggle and wrestle, no matter what they wrestle with. And that because of that, because of that compassion, 
from being forgiven much, that you would give us grace to love much those who, are, who, who don't know you. As we head on a mission, Lord, aim our target correctly. We ask in Christ's name, amen.